a Podcast One production. Welcome back to The Alternative Truth and the second part of our two-part series exploring Are Trans Kids Born or Made? Our next guest is Walt Heyer, an accomplished author and public speaker. Through his website, sexchangeregret.com and his blog, waltheyer.com, Walt raises public awareness about his regret and the tragic consequences suffered as a result of unnecessary sex change surgery. He's written several books on the subject, Trans Life Survivors, Paper Genders, and A Transgender's Faith, Being Just Some. His own story began in childhood at the age of four, and at the age of 38 he underwent gender reassignment surgery. In his experience, hormones and sex change couldn't solve the underlying issues driving gender dysphoria. After detransitioning, he has dedicated his life to help others whose lives have been derailed, and also lobby against the treatment of minors. One of the great gifts of the conversation I had with Walt was both his wisdom and candour. It's difficult to look at the decisions we make today through the lens of our much older selves. One might also say that Walt's gifts to all of us listening in here is that he's really unburdened by the need to protect, airbrush or edit the reality of his lived experience or his perspective on the situation as he's witnessing it. And on this, Walt isn't yelling from the cheap seats. He's fully in the arena as an author, an advocate and a support person for quite literally hundreds of detransitioners across the globe. Walt you've lived eight years of your life as a trans woman. Uh, you have detransitioned. Mm-hmm. It's a journey that many people would find absolutely astonishing um, and in many ways heartbreaking. You've since written several books, Trans Life Survivors, Paper Genders, A Transgender's Faith, and also commit your time completely to advocating and raising awareness about, can I say, the harm associated with treatment and, I guess, dominant thinking around what's right for transgender people? That would be accurate. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about your journey to date and what's compelled you to take the path you have? Yeah, I'm happy to do it. And thanks for having me on, allowing me to share a little bit of time about this. Well, my journey started 75 years ago. And it started as a four-year-old boy, uh, like many uh, today, someone is encouraging them or assisting them. And um, it was my grandmother who made me a purple chiffon dress and told me how cute I was in it at the age of four. And, you know, at the age of four, I had no idea what consequences were. I didn't even know what the word consequences was. So, you know, it just seemed like fun when grandma put me in the purple dress. I enjoyed it. She enjoyed it. And it was fun. And she told me how cute I looked. And, you know, I was a small little four-year-old boy. But what, in looking back, that I didn't know at the time that was happening and during those first early years from roughly five to seven years old, was that this idea that I could portray myself as a female and people would love on me, actually, I have learned and looked back at, and I've discovered that that was actually child abuse to me. It was not physical child abuse, but it was emotional and psychological child abuse, because what I realized today is that as a little boy, I couldn't become a girl, and no one does. It's biologically not possible. So 
the idea that I could change and become somebody else was just an idea. And sure, I enjoyed the whole aspect of presenting myself as a girl, uh, as a youngster. And I, and I did it all the way through my early teens. But here's the thing. When I was seven years old, as a result of that purple dress, my uncle, you know, he decided that because I was wearing a purple dress that I was, I was a perfect person to sexually molest. As a boy wearing a dress, he felt that I was vulnerable and that teasing and taunting me and molesting me was appropriate. And this happens to a lot of young boys that enter into this cross-dressing world. Uh, someone comes along and sees this as a target. And that's where the harm starts, as well as putting that purple dress on. And keep in mind, I would not have been sexually molested or sexually abused or touched by my uncle had it not been for the purple dress. So take the purple dress out of the equation, and I never would have had that molestation when I was seven, eight, or nine, which impacted my life. But it, the molestation didn't change me in terms of not wanting to be a girl. It probably enhanced my uh, desire to be a girl because, you know, I, I thought that I was being abused as a boy and I thought, well, if I was a girl, then men wouldn't abuse me. So I grew all the way through my teens. I, I had my own identity of Crystal West that I didn't tell anybody. I told a few people in my late teens about what I'd been doing. And keep in mind, this is in, you know, the 1950s. So people you know, they, they weren't talking about this. I was one of the only people around that had this going on. So I ended up getting married and having children and working. I worked on the Apollo space missions. I was an associate design engineer. I also transferred my skills and went into the auto industry. And I became a top executive for American Honda Motor Company. And so I had a lot of gifts and skills, but I was still troubled by that purple dress that grandma put me in and by the molestation that my uncle did. But I didn't know how to deal with that. I didn't know how to deal with either one of them. And so I went to a, a gender clinic or a therapist at the time is Paul Walker, who was actually the world leading authority at the time um, on this issue about how do, you know, he was actually the one who wrote the original international standards of care that have now morphed into the standards of care that most countries use. So my therapist was actually the chairperson who wrote the standards of care. And he told me that I needed hormone therapy and surgery because I was suffering from gender identity disorder. At the time, that was the term they used. They changed it to gender dysphoria, which he said it was going to be changed to gender dysphoria. So in his diagnosis of me, that proper treatment was hormones and surgery. So I just wanted to ask you, just so we've got a sense of timing, at this point, you've been cross-dressing and I guess questioning your gender for some decades before you meet Paul Walker. Yes. Yeah. So for 30 years. Right. So how old were you when this diagnosis of gender identity disorder or gender dysphoria, as we now know it, was made? Yeah, I was 38 years old. So, so it had been going on for 34 years. So it wasn't, it didn't come lightly, you know. And so I struggled a little bit when I first heard about it and thinking, wow, really? Um, and he, you know, I, I kept going back to him. And so in, in 1981, 82, 83, I was seeing him 
And he finally gave me approval in 1983. I went and had surgery in 1983 in Trinidad, Colorado by Dr. Biber. I began to identify as Laura Jensen. And so that was, you know, many years ago. I divorced my wife, I left my children um, and lived as Laura until I began to question this idea because I was, you know, as an engineer and a top executive for an auto company, I began to dig in and, and thought, you know, you need to question things. You don't need to just buy into things. So I, I challenged the surgeon, Dr. Biber and Dr. Walker both to tell me how doing hormone therapy and how doing surgery actually transforms a man into a woman. And I wanted them to do that in a California court system so that I could have my birth record reversed because it, it was changed to where it said female and I wanted to go back to female. So my point with having the surgeon and the therapist come into court and testify about whether they could actually change me or not. And so when they came to court and they wrote a document to court, it in the document, it says hormones and surgery do not change a man into a woman. I mean, they, they wrote the document and said that the most that can happen is you can have it mixed, but it, you cannot change the morphology. You can't change the inside morphology. You can't change the gender. The only thing you can do is make it appear as though you changed genders, but you actually didn't. So that was pretty disturbing to me. And that's, that was at that point when I began to become agitated about the fact that they were actually lying and using the terminology that it was a change of gender. It wasn't at all. All they've done is put a cosmetic face on this idea that if they enhanced men to look more like women with cosmetic surgery and change their genitalia, that they would be more comfortable, that they would have a better life. And what we've learned is that even in Dr. Ellen, Charles L. Illenfeld, in 1979, after working with over 600 men who had changed to women, at the end of that time that he worked with those individuals, he said, this is not working. They're, they're traumatized to the point of suicide. They're unhappy. And the issues that they're struggling with are not resolved by giving them hormones and surgery. And the same thing was said by other doctors like Paul McHugh. And then recently, just in the last couple of days in the Daily Signal, we find that Sweden, who did one of the most exhaustive studies, said that no one is helped by hormones and, and surgery. In, it, it doesn't help them psychologically. It doesn't help them emotionally. All you have is the same person with struggling with their emotional and psychological problems presenting themselves in a different gender. So this is the history that has brought me to this point where I have a website called sexchangeregret.com. Now, I would not be successful worldwide if there wasn't a lot of regret. If this was really a good thing, that giving people hormones and changing their genders, I would be out of business, that no one would contact me because the surgery and the hormones would be very effective. Well, it's not effective. I have people contacting me every single day and from all over the world. It isn't just here in the U.S. So, you know, my story is I'm here because 
the medical community has, in my view, from what I've experienced personally and from the people I've worked with, they've lied and they've told people that they're going to have a happier life. And it might be that way for a period of time, but it doesn't last a lifetime. It is not a solution to the issues that they're struggling with. And they shouldn't be giving them hormone therapy. They shouldn't be cutting body parts off. If a guy has a feeling like he wants to identify as a woman, let him dress up, let him go out, but don't give him hormones. Don't give him surgery. That's the stuff that does the harm. At least when then they have regret, they don't have to go back and try to get a phalloplasty or re redo their whole body uh, because it's been mutilated by surgery. So that's why I, I'm so passionate that I'll say it again. If it was so good and was so effective in helping people, I wouldn't have a website that has generated as much as 360,000 visits to it. So we know that it's a serious problem that people have, and I'm here to help them. I'm wanting to dive into some of the things you said, and specifically, I want to take us back to that time when you, I guess, had the surgery. I'm curious to know whether you had any relief Yeah, at the time. Like, it's an enormous undertaking, hormones and surgery. Yeah. Did that offer you any relief from the anguish and the angst that you had? I, yeah, I would say there was an initial, like, okay, when you go through it, you think, okay, now I'm going to be okay. You're, you're, you think you're there, you think you've arrived, um, and you're going to be fine because, you know, that's what they've been telling you. This is what you needed, and you followed all the protocols. I spent two years going through this process to get there to the surgery. And so, yeah, there was a time of relief. I was uh, somewhat jubilant about it early on. But there were, you know, over the years, as you go along, you begin to question that whole issue about, did they really, I mean, I look like a female, I'm working for the federal government as a female, uh, I have an apartment, I, you know, I'm living this life as a female, but am I really a female or not? And that question always came up to me. Now, i I never was in any kind of relationships during the time I was Laura. I just wasn't interested in relationships. I didn't have relationships with men or women or anybody. I was just running life solo as uh, Laura Jensen, female in San Francisco. And so um, I was happily working for the federal uh, FDIC, which is our banking system. And I worked for the postal service. So I had good jobs. I wasn't struggling except I had really some deep concerns about whether they could really change men into women. And I learned that they can't. Did you ever go back to Paul Walker and Dr. Biber and have a yes. a conversation? And how did it come to pass that you, I guess, arrived at the view you have? Like, what was the series of events that led you to detransition I think I was just, I put it back to my engineering background that I question things. What, when you look at what you can do, can they really do it? And, and I had conversations with uh, Dr. Walker and Dr. Walker finally wrote me a personal letter saying that he actually apologized for telling me that uh, he could do that. And he regretted um, he, he later died. It was a deathbed confession. He, he had AIDS 
and he died from AIDS. But before he died, about two weeks before he died, he wrote this deathbed confession saying that he regretted many times telling people that they could change genders and help them get hormone therapy and help them approve them for surgery. And he wished he hadn't. And Dr. Biber, um, you know, he was the one who actually signed the letter with Walker that went to the California Superior Court admitting that his surgery couldn't and didn't change any one of the over 4,500 people that he did surgery on. I wasn't the only one. He did over 4,500 gender surgeries. And, and he, he, medically speaking, scientifically speaking, biologically speaking, none of them ever changed genders because it's not possible to do so. I think that's pretty outrageous that we're giving so much credibility to something that can't happen. I, I've even come to the point where the word transgender, in my view, doesn't exist because nobody transgenders from one gender to the other. So the word is a misnomer as well as transitioning. So yes, I had conversations with them and both of them admitted, uh, and I've got it documented in court that you can't change genders. It's not possible. Let me pick you up on that because at this point in history, at the time this podcast is being recorded, there is in the Western world around a 3,000% increase in the number of children and young people presenting to gender services compared to 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I've recently read the Australian Standards of Care and Treatment Guidelines produced by the Royal Children's Hospital here in Melbourne for trans and gender diverse children and adolescents. Mm -hmm. As it's framed in this document, mm -hmm. being trans or gender diverse is a, in their words, a natural extension of the gender spectrum. They frame gender as a spectrum and the document goes on to detail how hormones and ultimately a medical pathway can help a child or a young person arrive at the gender they identify with. You would have seen documents like this. Yeah. I know you've read excerpts. Yeah. You, you've, you've been contacted by people in Europe and the UK. Mm -hmm. What's your response? Well, uh, sadly, uh, my response is to introduce children to hormone blocking therapies, which the, the hormone blocking therapies they use were never intended to be used to help uh, boys become girls or girls become boys. It's off-label stuff. They're using drugs as an experiment. Uh, it does harm to them. In many cases, you know, they're not going to be able to produce children. You know, if they have regret, which many of them will, I've worked with these teenagers now who have regret a year after going through this and they can't produce children. And so I, I put it in a category of child abuse. And I think any doctor who prescribes hormone therapies or engages in surgical changes to young people under the age of 18 should lose their license to practice medicine. They're abusing them. They have no idea what the consequences are gonna be. No more than I did when my grandma put me in that purple dress. It ruined my life. Uh, it destroyed my life. And so why am I an advocate? Because I don't want anybody else or as many people as I possibly can to go through this unnecessary surgical procedure or hormone therapy that is going to take their early life from them. And in my case, it took away much of my life and it harms everybody around you. So I'm sorry they're doing it. I'm sorry that it's become a political tool. 
because it's more politics than it is medicine. And, and, you know, this is the insanity of it. And there's a lot of people in these hospitals making a lot of money off it. So they're getting funds from uh, different places. So follow the money, but follow the lives and you'll see the wreckage that they're doing. And we were not going to see the total devastation of this for probably another 10 to 15 years. And then there's going to be those kids that they're treating now are going to be on a podcast somewhere. When I'm gone, they're going to be telling the story about this is what they did to me at the hospital. They gave me hormone blocking therapy and it didn't work for me. And I regret it. And I want my life back. Walt, I hear you. And, you know, if anyone has insight into the downstream impacts, it's you. I mean, I came to know you through um, the Heritage Foundation's panel discussion on the treatment of trans children. That said, I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of well-meaning parents who find themselves with a child or a young person who's distressed, Mm -hmm. who may have anxiety, Mm -hmm. depression, an eating disorder, concurrent diagnosis of autism and Asperger's. Right. And with the best of intentions, they take them off to the GP or the family doctor, and the family doctor goes, well, you better take them to the gender clinic. Right. And off it runs. What would you say to those parents who love their children, who want to do the best thing for their children? Yeah, well, you know, Asperger's and these other issues or these comorbid issues that these children have, anxiety, depression, uh, they have eating disorders. I have not found a case yet in the work that I've done in the last 25 years, where there wasn't some secondary issue going on. And instead of treating the secondary issue, which would be Asperger's, they give the the child hormone therapy and change their gender. I just had one yesterday where the young boy weighs less than a hundred pounds. He has a bone disorder. He's very frail, but because of his, his slender and slight body, He, at 22, went to a gender clinic, and they're going to put him on hormone therapy, and they're going to allow him to transition. I really am scared for this young man's life. You know, he's already got bone problems. He has other psychological and emotional issues as well. So I want the parent, when they have a child who's struggling, to deal with the underlying comorbid issue and not address and go forward with these gender changes, what I have found out is that if we address the comorbid issues, regardless of what it is, anxiety, body dysmorphia is a big one among young children. And if we address body dysmorphia and treat the body dysmorphia, the idea about changing genders evaporates. Same thing with depression and anxiety. Something has triggered this idea, and a lot of it has to do with you know, the internet, it has to do with schools promoting it. It has to do with hospitals promoting the idea. Kids are very impressionable and they can be led down this primrose path that leads to nowhere when they should be treating the underlying issues. It's they're serious issues. I'm not saying that children don't have things that need to be addressed. What I am saying is that you don't address the issues that these children have with hormone blocking therapy and give them a different name because it's not going to help them. You're not addressing the serious underlying problem. What would you say to the pediatrician whose defense is this child is suicidal because of their gender dysphoria and it is not a neutral act to do nothing? 
Yeah. So that argument is something I've heard come up, yeah. up over and over again as I've reviewed sure. what's written in the literature. There is this narrative, which is that if we don't treat gender dysphoria, it will result in, you know, morbidity. Yeah. Or young people will kill themselves. Okay. Here's the real truth behind it. And this is the research. This isn't me speaking. I've studied this at length because I was suicidal myself after surgery. And that's what shows up. They're more 18 times more likely to commit suicide after changing genders than they are before. And any young child, before they go through this idea about changing and identifying as another person, if they're threatening uh, suicide or saying they're suicidal, then what we know from research, and this is important, 90% of people who talk about suicide ideation have an undiagnosed and untreated psychological, emotional, or sexual disorder. So there's a disorder that's not being treated. It's not they're going to commit suicide because they're not having surgery. It's because they're not addressing the underlying comorbid disorders. So uh, the idea that you can give them hormones and change their gender only shows that eight, they're 18 times more likely to commit suicide afterward. That's also in the Swedish study. And that was, I think, you know, thousands of people involved in that Swedish study. I think it was maybe 10,000. So, you know, the, these are real bogus claims. And I do know that some children uh, use the suicide thing to manipulate parents uh, into getting hormone therapy. Because they talk about it online. I've had the, the kids tell me that, oh, just tell your parents you'll commit suicide if you don't get the hormone therapy and they'll take you to a clinic and you'll get the therapy. So, you know, we, we need much better intake care. And some people call that gatekeepers. I don't think there's anything wrong with having a gatekeeper who can watch and make sure that kids who are getting these treatments don't have other serious issues that, that right now in the gender clinics that are LGBT type gender clinics, they will allow anybody to get the hormone therapy. Even though there's a therapist there, the therapists, I'm sorry to say, don't do deep dives into the childhood's history. I, I was working with one today who had numerous psychological and emotional issues, bipolar disorder, PTSD, depression and other things. And they're trying to transition the child. And he's contacting me, thankfully, because he's wondering if that's really going to work for him. So, you know, that was in a, a totally different country. And so the doctors are doing a horrible job of addressing the comorbid issues. The only thing they see is hormones and hormone blocking therapy and transitioning. Nothing else is allowed. In fact, if you talked about the Heritage Foundation. When I spoke out against it at the Heritage Foundation panel, they took my video down. I'm not even allowed to say that. It's like, you can't say that. Well, what do you mean I can't say it? I can't tell the truth. And so, you know, there was a battle over the fact that they don't want me talking the truth. And the truth is that these kids don't need hormone blocking therapy. And let me, let me say this. Go back 10 or 15 years and tell me how many kids committed suicide because they didn't get hormone blocking therapy. Zero, none, because there were no advocates. There were no clinics. There were, you know, this was not happening then. The only reason this is all ginned up is because governments and these hospitals are making kids think 
that they can go change genders. It is a crime. I'm telling you, this is the biggest medical crime, malpractice, that's been going on for years. I mean, if you go back, uh, there just wasn't any. Now we've got it in schools. We're pumping it like it was, you know, billboard, get a gender change. They're ruining kids' lives, and nobody seems to really care. So you're right. There is a large, there's a not insignificant proportion of the medical community that is onboarding towards the treatment of trans and gender diverse children and adolescents. Equally, based on the panel discussion at the Heritage Foundation, there is also a community of medical practitioners that are putting up the flag at risk to their own professional reputation. Yes. Tell us a bit about the people within the medical community or the institutions who you're in contact with and who are concerned, as you are. Yeah, well, a lot of them are my close friends. I've had dinner with them. I've been in meetings with them. And I can't go through the litany of all of them. But when they come out in opposition like I am today, they get fired or they get moved to a lower position where they're not in a position to make a decision. And these are some of the most outstanding psychiatric and medical doctors in the country and endocrinologists, psychotherapists, you name it. If you come out against it, you're going to get canceled, terminated, or given a job where you're not in a position of authority to weigh in on these things. And this is going to come back. And, you know, there's going to be a day of reckoning and people are going to say, you know, that old man won't hire was right. And we should have listened to him. I've actually had people write me two, three years ago, and it's in my book, Trans Life Survivors. And he wrote me and said, you know, you should get off the Internet. You should stop your, you know, your website. Uh, You don't know what you're talking about. And I wrote him back and I said, well, here's some things. And, and then he wrote me again two years later. He said, I should have listened to you. And I went through it and I have regret. Can you help me detransition? I get those all the time. So this is going to come back to haunt the medical community at some point. All they're doing is enriching my site, Sex Change Regret, because I'm getting many more people. The more they do, the more I get. We've touched on so many aspects of this I guess, unfolding crisis, to paraphrase what you've described. Mindful that we're, we're running short of time, I wanted to, I guess, land on a place of action. Yeah. If you could wave a wand, if you could convey a message globally, what would be your call to action to Hollywood, the community, medical practitioners, families? What's your message yeah. to all of them? The, the message is, these children and adults, doesn't matter who it is that's going through this, they're struggling with something. And what we need to do is identify what it is they're struggling with, whether it's bipolar disorder, whether it's dissociative disorder, separation anxiety, body dysmorphia, autogynephilia, transvestic fetishes, cross-dressing obsessions, obsessive compulsive, all these things are wrapped into, even even many of them have schizophrenia. I think I saw one research said it could be 20 to 25% have schizophrenia. They have issues that need to be addressed. We need to address that, those issues. We need to diagnose them. We need to provide effective, sound, long-term treatment for those issues, but we don't need 
is to give them hormone therapy and change their genders. Walt Heyer, I can't thank you enough for making the time to tell your story and to share your wealth of experience in this area. For anyone listening in that wants to, I guess, join your community, sexchangeregret.com is the website to go to and you're incredibly generous in answering emails. So, Walt, thank you so much and um, we look forward to an ongoing conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm grateful to be on and be able to share with you. You're a delight as an interviewer. Thank you very much. I was really affected by the interview we did with Walt. It's a conversation my producer and I will never forget. Thinking back over his life, I was struck with a sense of gratitude for his willingness to show up. There's something about the absolute vulnerability of his account, his commitment to sharing his truth and fostering an open dialogue, even when it's uncomfortable. This said, Walt's account did repoint us towards a number of recurring questions. How might we better understand the relationship between mental health and achieving peace with one's gender? What does future care for gender dysphoria really look like? And how far has medicine and surgery come since Walt was first treated? The last question feels like a reasonable segue to our next guest, Associate Professor Ramin Shayan. Ramin is a reconstructive plastic surgeon at St Vincent's, Royal Melbourne and Alfred Hospitals, and also in private practice. In 2015, Ramin became the director of Australasia's preeminent reconstructive surgery research organisation, the O'Brien Institute. He has over 50 peer-reviewed publications, including in the journals Nature, Cancer Cell and Nature Reviews. He is editor of six international academic journals and interested in all areas of plastic and reconstructive surgery, including skin cancer, hand surgery, microsurgery and aesthetic surgery. In 2018, he co-founded biotech startup Gertrude Biomedical. In preparation for this interview, Ramin and I exchanged several conversations. As a thought leader in the area of plastic surgery, it was great to have his lens on what good plastic surgery is. And it's clear from our conversations that there's no easy paths when it comes to the surgical treatment of trans people. For female to male transitioners, the complication rate for bottom surgery is 100%. For young people, the concept of ethical consent is truly fraught. As we've talked about offline quite a bit, surgery does form part of a, a medical pathway for trans people that end down, end up, you know, with hormone affirmation and then gender, I guess, reassignment as, as something on their horizon. Not all um, gender transition uh, treatment is the same. Um, some individuals stage their treatment. Some end up with what's called top surgery yep. and then go on to have full genital reassignment. Could you, from your surgical, from your expert surgical perspective, make comment on the fact that there are young people, as young as 15, who are being consented for, say, top surgery, whether they're male or female or, um, mm. you know, the other way around, and then we'll move on to the, you know, the rest of what a plastic surgeon may or may not offer. Hmm. Look, I think in terms of surgery, I guess the, the age is an interesting question in itself. Um, let's take any other type of surgical procedure that might be driving a patient to come and see us in, in the office. And, you know, I think if, if say, a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old um, young lady came in and said, I want a breast 
augmentation or reduction because of I don't like them or the symptoms of having heavy breasts uh, bother me or peer pressure or whatever it is. Or someone came in saying, look, my nose isn't exactly what I would like it to look like. Um, most plastic surgeons would encourage that patient to build a, a therapeutic alliance, a therapeutic relationship, and actually walk through what that journey will look like for the next couple of years and uh, probably end up looking at maybe the age of 18 or 19, particularly after growth has stopped. Sometimes growth continues beyond that, but um, trying to get the patient through to a point where they are more mature in their physical development um, such that you can, you know, you're not working on shifting sands effectively. You're working on the final anatomical product of development. So I guess your question about 15, uh, a 15-year-old may be one that is, um, that is deliberately chosen to be in that age bracket, but personally from, from you know, if, if we took the principles aside, um, we would say that most 15-year-olds wouldn't get uh, an operation with most plastic surgeons um, uh, if, if at all avoidable. A question I have is at what point would someone in your position refer a patient for psychological or further psychiatric assessment? Yeah. Well, I must say that um, in, in plastic surgery, I have a pretty low threshold of that. Um, uh, I have some very good colleagues who are expert psychologists. I have colleagues who are experts in body image in particular. And if I feel in any way that um, uh, the patients have uh, a fixation on some cosmetic part of their face or, or similar or a concept that um, I feel they're sort of ruminating or perseverating over or, uh, or don't necessarily have a realistic perspective as an external unbiased observer, I will always say to them quite in an open manner that um, any image change, any physical change, be it from an intended change through to a traumatic injury, uh, grieving for a missing body part, um, involves a psychological adjustment that doesn't come naturally to everyone and we have some experts in helping them to undergo that process or at least give advice around how to approach the process. And so I have a pretty low threshold to refer um, aesthetic uh, cosmetic patients or patients who are adjusting to a different um, body identity of some variety. So would you say you're protecting people from themselves when you do that? Um, look, I'd be dishonest if I didn't say I'm also protecting myself um, because any time that one doesn't have an alignment of patient expectations in the consent process, one is vulnerable to causing the patient uh, an injury, I guess, that, that may have unintended consequences and therefore is not good medical legal practice. And that's just a sort of reflexive thing that one would always consider. But really the main concern for me is that I need to know that every patient has truly been adequately consented for their surgery. So that means that you know, plastic surgery is often the arm wrestle between patient aspirations and anatomical and blood supply realities. And so it's very important to tell them that whilst they have an image in their head that they want or expect, and I have an image in my head of what I think is technically possible, those two have to marry up. 
And so anytime the patient doesn't have as close an image to what I think from my experience is possible, it's incumbent upon me to protect them from disappointment and frustration and, um, and anger and, uh, uh, and, you know, wasting their time, wasting their money, risking operative complications. It's my job to, to make sure that they know what they're going in for. Okay. I'm going to zoom, zoom out and then zoom back in. Um, as it stands, we have in the Western world around, in, in, by some estimates, a three to 4,000% increase in the number of children and young people presenting to gender services. One longitudinal study I looked at, and there are, there are multiple, evidence that 84.3% of children who identify as trans, if not treated with puberty blockers, will desist and they'll, they'll be comfortable with their biological sex. However, if they are treated with puberty blockers, so we're thinking about this large pipeline, mm-hmm. 99% will go on to identify as, as trans on a more enduring basis. And I would presume a significant number of those will seek out plastic surgery from people like you. You've just said that uh, a, a good plastic surgeon will represent or make sure that their representation of what is possible aligns with the patient seeking treatment. Is it realistic to sort of message to a child and a young person, an adolescent, that it's possible to change sex? I guess it's a it's a it's a difficult question to answer in a in a short period of time. And as I say, I'm I'm not necessarily the expert on the psychology behind it, but I would say that um, we make body parts for patients, um, noses, ears, eye sockets, fingers, arms, breasts, jaws, feet. And I think until they've gone through it, it's, it's actually literally impossible for people to truly feel what it will be like inside that new body part but it is our job to try and give them the best understanding of what they will be going through. Now, in that pipeline that you described, as plastic surgeons, we largely get the patient at the end of the journey. But um, so, in a way, the die is cast, and we don't. Uh, we don't. The experts who deal in this will tell you that that you know that the. the, the lead-up work has been done done prior to them meeting the patient. In terms of what the surgery is, will that body part, for example, a neophallus or a a penis that's been reconstructed, really ever represent what the patient would take to feel of that new gender? It's a difficult question. Does a patient ever feel that a finger that we transfer a toe up onto to replace becomes a a finger? Well, the answer is some do, some don't. And I think in terms of what the surgery is, for example, to reconstruct the, the penis, what it entails is a similar sort of microsurgery to what we do to re- reconstruct a jaw or an abdomen, but it's taken um, most commonly forearm skin is taken in a pattern that is then sort of folded on itself like an elaborate style of origami. Um, a prosthesis is placed inside it for erectile function and part of the skin pattern is folded in to become the urethra or the urine passage that sits outside the body through the middle of the penis and a pumping mechanism is placed inside the scrotum typically that will be like the old Reebok pump sneakers 
that will enable you to um, pump the testicle to create an um, erection. The other aspect is sensation. So does the sensation ever really come back? Well, there are those who tell you it does and there are those who tell you that the functions are good. But on average, um, colleagues that I've worked with who have done a lot of this sort of work will tell you that patients are often up for 20 or 30 operations to refine the practical aspects of it, like um, the urethra being strictured or, or tightening at the joints or the seams, if you like. And so is a patient really prepared for that? Is a patient really, um, are the positives of having that um, uh, area reconstructed or that organ reconstructed outweighing the, um, the downsides? Is it more than effectively having a breast there, as we said, which is not aspiring to be functional, but is more um, a psychological or a, a physical appendage there to make one feel, well, I guess whether it's possible to fully reconstruct all the functions, we do our best at mimicking it. Does it really feel like the real thing? Um, I guess that's a question for the patients over a large number with a sort of um, ratified or verified good quality questionnaire to answer quality of, of the outcome measures. I'm going to push you on this a little bit and double down because having read a lot of the international guidelines for best practice treatment of trans children, many adolescents are being asked to comprehend risk-benefit ratios, mm. which put them on this medical path to try and resolving their dysphoria. Do you think it's possible to, one, as an adolescent, truly comprehend? This is, these are people that haven't gone through puberty. Like mm. in Australia, it's now legal to puberty block someone as young as 10, mm. maybe younger. I, I, I haven't sort of got primary data myself, mm. and that child is then, you know, put on this path before they've experienced their own sexuality, before they've even experienced puberty. Mm. How do you think it's possible to consent someone who perhaps can't compare the experience of a penis to a neophalanx? Neophallus, yeah. So it's a sliding door. It's a, it's a sliding door scenario. How, how do you ever have those parallel experiences in one person to be able to tell unless you've had a, a deprivation of that organ that previously existed? So one clue could be from patients who have, for example, a, a, you know, these flesh-eating um, infections called necrotizing fasciitis or fourniers gangrene in the, in the genital area. Um, infections or loss of a penis from a traumatic injury, um, do they ever feel whole with a neophallus put back on? Um, I think from patients that I've spoken to, they, they probably do feel that a replacement of what they had is, is, um, is better than nothing. Is that comparable to someone who has never experienced having had the, op the other option I truly couldn't tell you because I think um, yeah, I would be overlaying a lot of my own personal uh, biases on that question, uh, my own identity on that question. I think for young people, uh, and I certainly had a very tough time deciding what I wanted to do after school, let alone uh, these big issues at that time. It's a confusing time. I think the message is there's heterogeneity in, in the population. And it's fine even if a, a population or a subpopulation are very comfortable I guess, like anything else, we have to make sure that there's a safety net to to protect those who may not be as sure um, uh, from 
from the risk that they will come out the other side not having met their expectations. For completeness, I would like to sort of work this mental exercise through from the other direction in that you've talked about the female to male transition. Now, what's realistic in terms of someone who has had all of their um, biological sexual hormones, I guess, flipped in a way to change them from a male to a female, Mm. given that they've had their entire adolescence with hormone intervention? What have you got to work with and what's realistic for them in terms of a a vagina and, you know, Mm. the... Mm. Genital urinary tract. I think um, in terms of the in terms of constructing the scaffold in the female to male, it's from a technical point of view. There's a lot more moving parts that can that can you know the microsurgical elements that can go wrong. So with the opposite transition from male to female, from a technical perspective, a lot of the things that you're working with are already there. So I think in terms of the the technical aspects of the surgery, there is probably a lower risk of of complications and ongoing um, issues. So I think it it is a simpler surgical process because there isn't the the same microsurgery. In terms of what the functional outcome of the the neo-vagina is, I mean, I I do a lot of reconstruction for um, low colorectal cancers that often take out the vaginal wall and um, and so we have to reconstruct the, the posterior and the side wall sometimes the, the front walls of, of the vagina um, the the advantages of doing it from an existing penile skin is that there is a nerve supply and there is a blood supply to it so I, I think that in terms of the complexity of, of the surgery the technical aspects it's doable um, whether it's functionally robust enough to be functionally used for intercourse, um, I guess uh, one has to discuss it with with users of the of the um, post-operative outcome. Um, but you know, do the mucosa inside the lining of the vagina is very different to skin um, in terms of the uh, secretion of the mucuses and the natural lubricants. So there are obviously different constraints of that nature. But in, from, a, from a technical aspect, um, it's, it's certainly, if I were to say, which is more likely to have a matching of surgical outcomes to uh, patient expectations, I would assume, and I don't have data for it, that the transition from male to female in that regard would be something that would be um, at least easier to achieve. It is, though, irreversible unless you want to go through that whole process of reconstructing the phallus with some of those complex measures that we've discussed. Um, and so, again, back to the back to the reversibility of it, we certainly um, we do replant um, penises if they're amputated. Um, we do reconstruct penises if they're lost. But um, I guess in, in the first instance, one should be sure that they want to actually embark on that road. And your question is, can someone be sure as an adolescent that they want to bark upon that, embark upon that road? Um, I think that's a bigger question than I can really answer from a technical point of view. But uh, I can tell you it's, it's, for all intents and purposes, it's an irreversible operation. Um, and certainly if you did decide to reverse it, the, the outcome of the reversed organ would certainly be less than the original uh, organ that was there that was amputated or, or, 
or used to create the neo-vagina in the first place. So mindful that we're going to have to wrap up soon, I wanted to ask you if you were speaking to a young person or their family today who was who were contemplating gender transition and everything that goes with it, what would your message to them be? I think my message with any surgery, including that, would be um, never rush into any surgical option until you know the full impact of what you're signing up for. Maybe talk to patients who've gone through what you're um, hoping to go through and try to understand every upside and downside. Um, Often what happens is patients will have a certain aspiration and they gloss over the details of what the reality is because they just want to get to that end point. Um, In some operations, it's just not possible to get to the end point that they envisage. And so the longer one can spend getting to know the patient, getting to know their expectations as the surgeon, um, understanding what they want, understanding the social um, milieu around them, the support network, um, the, the job structure or schooling or educational structure around them, and truly understanding the patients, I would say that the more time that they could spend in that process, the better. So um, at the very least, they would need to have an information session, come back with a list of questions and take as long as it takes until the doctor feels there is good alignment between the expectations and the grasp of uh, or the, the grasp of what the capabilities are and what the surgeon can genuinely in their in, you know, hand on heart offer to the patient um, that is a reasonable outcome. And I think that's the biggest message is that, you know, you, you, you can't spend too much time getting as much information as you can about any operation. Um, you can't spend too much time thinking about the implications, understanding what's driving the desire to have a particular procedure in an operation and understanding what the outcomes will be and how far they may fall short or whether they do fall short of the expectations. And one needs to have all of the support networks for such an eventuality in place. Um, I think the, the worst thing one can do in any surgery is just rush straight in and do it and just say, over to you, doc. Well, I think, um, you know, as Australians, uh, we tend to ask a lot of questions more than a lot of other cultures and we answer a lot more questions and that's how it should be and we should never stop. I mean, getting to know the patient, to have a therapeutic alliance with that patient is absolutely the best uh, investment of time that the surgeon and the patient can spend and that's even more critical when the um, surgical task is irreversible or difficult to reverse and it's even more important when we have uh, people who may be due to their age, their uh, language, cultural um, opportunities of education, may not have all of the facts at hand or know how to access those facts. We just need to be honest and give everyone as much information and as much resources to make their decision and empower them to do so in a responsible way, um, not a, sort of a, an old-fashioned paternalistic way, but a really responsible and open way and be as open to them walking away after we do that as we are to them walking through the door for the surgery. And as I say, I don't do this surgery, but I would send them to colleagues of mine who I know have a responsible approach and who are ethical and who are um, good at doing the surgery from a technical point of view, of of whom there are many, 
or not many, but there are a select few who I would send my patients to. And as you know um, yourself, when a doctor has a network of people they trust and they send patients to, um, even if they don't do the surgery themselves, they have invested in the process. And so they, they need to then have a knowledge that that patient is being looked after and their interests are being managed and uh, cared for appropriately. Ramin, I want to thank you for, um, I guess, providing us with a conversation that's probably left many people with as many um, questions as it's answered. I um, appreciate that your opinion also comes with a huge amount of gravity. So thank you so much. And if you ever want to track Ramin down, you'll find him at the O'Brien Institute. Yes, thank you very much, mate. Processing my conversation with Ramin, I wasn't left with a sense of clarity, rather a shared weight of responsibility around how we communicate what's possible and what's realistic. It felt material that, despite being one of the best plastic surgeons in the country, Ramin hasn't and won't treat people wanting gender reassignment. In his view, informed consent means just that, that there's rigour around what is being done and a sufficient evidence base around the long-term consequences of taking action particularly for children and young people. At this point in history, it is honest to frame collective best attempts compared with many other plastic surgery areas as, well, frankly, pioneering. Now, if there was a single sentence that could summarise my feelings towards this subject, is that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. One of the statements I read from a treating clinician that left an indelible mark on my psyche was that, It's very clear from our first-hand experience of working with these young trans people and their families that doing nothing is not a neutral act. It's anxiety-provoking, really, because statements like this, they kind of set up a neat cognitive sequitur. That is that the job of modern medicine and surgery is to do something, to label, to medicate, to inject, or to cut. Reflecting on this during sleepless nights, I wondered if this was a dangerous ruse. To what extent are we at risk of violating the first and most fundamental tenet of medicine? To first do no harm. After all, good ethical medicine means saying no must be an allowed answer to should I treat. Moreover, are we promulgating the idea that doing is superior to being? Holding space for the distress of another person remains one of the most helpful and therapeutic things one human can offer another. As the old adage says, the mandate of good healthcare is to cure sometimes relieve often, to comfort always. As it stands, the current medical state-of-the-art for young trans people falls short of the evidence required to guide by absolutes. We're at the relative dawn of trans-specific healthcare. Better care and intervention is going to require orders of magnitude more research and investment. Still, were I to apply the lens of philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who believed life is not a problem to be solved, but a reality to be experienced, I also find myself asking, how might one support and nourish the relationship children have with their reality, just as they are? There's no doubt that this episode asked more questions than it answered. What I do know is that the world I imagine is one in which people, particularly children, can show up and be embraced as themselves. It's also one in which, as much as possible, we're not turning to a sick culture or an external expert for a sense of who we are. I'd love to revisit this topic In the meantime, thanks for listening and look forward to joining you on the next episode of The Alternative Truth. Alternative Truth is recorded in the studios of Podcast One Australia.